I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. How many were at uh, Friday nights to do with Ed Wilson? My God, look at this. Okay, it's been biology week, and it's going to keep being biology week. I think a peculiarity of these long, nowish talks is that so many of them wind up being whole earthish. Uh, Ed was what was the subject of his book, The Social Domination of Earth, Social Conquest of Earth. And then we had uh, Mark Linus talking about the Anthropocene, basically the nine barriers that uh, basically could limit human and other life on this planet that uh, humans have somewhat overdone. Planet, 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 whole earth, whole earth. And here comes Charles C. Mann, who limited himself to the Americas the last time, with 1491. Just two years later, suddenly he's whole earth, 1493, and it's the homogenocene this time. Let's travel with him, Charles C. Mann. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. This is all working? Right. I thought I'd start at the beginning. <laughs> As many of you probably learned in school, 200 million years ago, the Earth consisted of a single giant landmass, scientists call Pangaea. Geological forces broke it up, forever separating the continents, and forever separating the inhabitants of those continents, creating completely separate ecosystems that effectively didn't touch each other for tens of millions of years. It's completely different suites of plants and animals that about 500 years ago were suddenly brought together by this guy. One of the ways I got started in this whole subject was about uh, 15 years ago, my parents demanded that I come back to my childhood home and uh, clear out the stuff that I'd left there since I'd gone to college. Any of you who are parents will recognize the kind of wayward child that I was and I opened up all the boxes of junk that I had in the attic, and I discovered, to my chagrin, my eighth-grade American history textbook from Highland Junior High School, which I had never returned. And right in the front was this picture here of Christopher Columbus, and I stared at it kind of riveted, um, because as I looked at it, I realized that there were many things that were wrong with this picture, and not just the fact that everybody in it looks like George Washington. <laughs> from a modern perspective, what we recognize about Columbus is that he and the people who came over with him were not alone in those ships. This picture shows basically nothing but people, but in fact, huge numbers of passengers went on the ships of Columbus and his successors. And so a more realistic picture would look something like this. Because Columbus inaugurated what uh, the wonderful historian Alfred Crosby has called the Columbian Exchange, which was this period of time that we still live in today, where huge numbers of creatures from over there came over here, huge numbers of creatures from over here came over there. It was the biggest ecological convulsion since the death of the dinosaurs. 
and it shapes um, human history as well. From a biological point of view, however, this uh, could be said not just to be an exchange of the kind of thing that I've been talking about in human history, but something that they've called the homogenocene. And it comes from the idea that the Earth's ecosystems are being put in a blender and homogenized. And as I also like the idea that it comes from homogenous, you know, man, um, human generated. The term was um, coined by Michael Samways and you know, has been abused by me for um, a few years now. But the idea is that this is this period that we, we live in now. It's the beginning of globalization. It all starts with uh, Columbus. And its import is as much ecological as it is economic. And one way to think about it is shown here. This is a Dutch genre painting. There's many of these kind of paintings. And what they effectively show is lower middle class people living in barns. And this is the way the countless numbers of people in Europe, Asia, and Africa live for thousands of years after agriculture. And they're sitting there surrounded by their domestic animals. Now, the reason that this is important uh, is that, as we know from things like bird flu, every now and then a human disease becomes or excuse me, an animal disease jumps the species barrier, as scientists say, and becomes a human disease. And so, from an epidemiologist's point, this is what the picture looks like. <laughs> so here you have the cow, you know, which is the source of uh, bovine rinderpest, um, which is the ancestor of measles and tuberculosis. You have the poultry, which we know from influenza, also whooping cough or pertussis. The um, horse in the background there is equine encephalitis and probably um, smallpox. And then up in the rafters here, you have bats, which are the source of rabies. And so huge numbers of people in Europe, Asia, and Africa spent their lives swimming in a kind of bacterial and viral soup um, all, de- all their lives. And this was a major factor in the way that they lived. Now, let's go to the Americas, you know, before Columbus, in this period of time when there was no contact. And you see here a typical um, Powhatan longhouse. The Powhatan were the people that were encountered by John Smith and those people in um, Chesapeake Bay in the 1600s. And so if you're an architect, you look at this um, house and you say it's essentially the same as the barn we saw in the previous picture. It's a structure held up by um, timbers lashed together. There's no windows. There's no chimney. It's effectively the same building. The big difference here is that every animal in the picture is dead. It's like Sarah Palin's dream house. It's... (laughs) And the reason for this is that by a quirk of evolutionary history that we can talk about if you're curious um, to learn more about it, that at the time of Columbus, there were very, very few domesticable animals in the Americas. There are no cattle, there are no horses, there are no sheep, there are no goats, there's no poultry. There's none of the familiar domestic animals, nor any analogs to them. And so the peoples of the Americas did not spend their time swimming in this kind of bacterial and viral soup. There's an enormous difference there. And so... In the first 150 years um, or so after Columbus, the big part of the exchange was invisible, these microorganisms. And on the right-hand side of this picture here is a partial list of the organisms that crossed the Atlantic from Europe to the Americas in the first 150 years. And on the left-hand side is a pretty complete list of the ones that went the other way. (laughs) And this enormous epidemiological imbalance, I would argue, is the most important fact that your kids should probably learn Um, about American history since Columbus. Because when these diseases came, you know, imported inadvertently by Europeans in the first 150 years after um, Columbus, the result was that somewhere between two-thirds and 95% 
of the original inhabitants of the Americas died. It was the greatest demographic catastrophe in human history. There's been nothing like it before um, or after, thank God. And it was an absolutely extraordinary event that goes a tremendously long way towards explaining why small groups of poorly um, poorly equipped Europeans at the ends of very long supply chains were able to establish themselves in ecosystems that were utterly unlike anything that they had seen before. Absent this mammoth exchange of a mammoth and one-sided exchange of microorganisms, it's very difficult to understand how my ancestors and many of the ancestors of people in this room would have got here. Now this, it wasn't the only impact that um, had on the human world. One of the pleasures of working on this uh, book um, that I recently um, published was that a little bit of it appeared in National Geographic and I got to work with a wonderful um, illustration and map staff there. And we contacted about uh, you know, 20 or so anthropologists, archaeologists, and ecologists who work on you know, the history of the landscapes of the eastern seaboard, and we asked them what you know, the area that they studied looked like in, you know, at Columbus' time in 1500. And we put their answers together and compiled this map. Now, this isn't like to be understood as some perfect pixel-by-pixel pixel recreation. It's an indicative map. And what we're trying to show is that the human imprint on the east um, coast of the Americas was extremely heavy. All these areas that are lighter green were cleared by fire for agriculture, and even the areas that we show forest, most of them were open by um, today's standards because native people burned the undergrowth um, every year to encourage the kind of tender new shoots that would bring in the kind of game that they like to hunt. And so, in fact, the forests were so open and park-like that people like John Smith um, reported being able to ride at a full gallop through the, um, through the woods, and he was crazy enough that he might have actually have done it. So you have a landscape that looks like this. Then, very quickly after uh, Columbus, all the people who were maintaining this landscape die. And the result is a mammoth reforestation of the la- landscape. The first impact of um, Europeans on the Americas, because this is repeated throughout the uh, Americas, is this huge reforestation. And the wilderness that is celebrated by Thoreau and John Muir and people like that um, was largely an inadvertent European creation. And a lot of Native people don't have the same feelings about it because for them it's a cemetery. And so this picture that we have, you know, that I certainly grew up with, of this sort of you know, trackless forest, and in my, that same um, eighth grade American history textbook talks about how a squirrel could go from tree to tree to tree all the way from Cape Cod to the Mississippi River. Um, you know, that image that we have of the great American wilderness dates back from this time, and it was something that my ancestors saw and when they came here um, in the 18th century, and did, but they didn't realize that it was, in fact, a recent phenomenon. Now, if you think about it, when you look at this kind of phenomenon, what are these, the cessation of fires, the regrowth of trees, what you're talking about is a dramatic drop um, of, carbon, of carbon levels in the air. And so in recent years, you know, lots of scientific papers have appeared that have this kind of incomprehensible looking graph. And the point here is not to try and have you understand this graph because it is kind of incomprehensible, but to try to convince you that these kinds of graphs exist. And what they are, are researchers attempting to measure the carbon levels, you know, carbon dioxide levels in the air 500 years ago. And what they typically show is that they plummet. 
you know, right after Columbus, carbon dioxide levels um, plummet, and you can see it in um, you know, lots of different measures, like the little bubbles of gas trapped in Arctic ice, which can be read you know, kind of like um, uh, tree rings because they get built up every year. It's uh, done in the bottom and here of um, Central American lakes. It's also done by uh, tree growth records and um, you know, isotope counts. And there's all these kinds of things that suggest that there's this huge down drop in the level of carbon dioxide in the air. And this um, is the, I think, the leading um, theory, an explanation for a period of time called the Little Ice Age, which is about a 250-year cold snap that begins in about 1550 and ends in about 1800, um, causes you know, very, very cold temperatures um, throughout uh, the northern um, hemisphere for that 250-year period and ends up in the um, creation of yet another Dutch genre painting, um, t style and what it is of the little kids skating on the canals and um, I, love, I love this uh, picture and I read an entire extremely dull biography of Peter Bruegel, a service I performed for you to try and find out when he actually painted it and about after 350 turgid pages I discovered that this had actually been painted in late April and early May if any of you have been to the Netherlands, it's been a very long time since the Netherlands looked like this in April and May and so what you're seeing here then in this kind of um, you know, shin bone connected to the knee bone, connected to the ankle bone or what way, is the kind of back and forth cross currents um, you know, around the world that lead um, you know, me and I would argue many more, uh, increasingly most historians to say that this period of globalization, this period of time when one part of the world is all mixed up with another part of the world really begins with Columbus and uh, ends up being as much ecological as economic. Now, none of our ancestors, none of the uh, Europeans involved, nor none of the native people, actually thought about things in this term. This is a modern attempt to impose some kind of order on the past. What they were thinking about was shown here. And for their, from their point of view, the most important event after Columbus was shown here, which is when in southern Bolivia, um, the Spaniards discovered um, Potosi, which is the biggest silver strike in history by a huge margin. And it was as... Uh, essentially as close to a mountain of pure silver as geology allows. It was just a vast expansion in the world's money supply because most of the world used silver for money supply. The world's supply of precious metals doubled or even tripled in the you know, century or so after the discovery of, of Potosi. And from the Europeans' point of view, what happened is this gush of um, silver washed in, they were kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, before uh, Western Europe had been a relatively poor part of the world, suddenly this vast sum of money just sort of throws in their laps and they begin to be able to throw their, um, their, their weight around. And so, you know, like um, anybody who's just had a windfall, what the Europeans do is go shopping. And so they get the silver here, a bunch of it crosses the, um, the Pacific to Spain's outpost in uh, Manila, which is established in 1571. And then they bring silk, porcelain, slaves, and spices over here to Mexico, add um, sh you know, tobacco and sugar and so forth, ends up in Spain. They use, buy guns and horses, which are used to get the slaves, which are used to mine the silver. And so you have this loop of commerce that involves every habitable part of the ocean starting in the 16th um, century. And in fact, at one point, my um, editor suggested that my book should be called Ha Ha Tom Friedman, The World Has Been Flat for 400 Years. <laughs> but um, uh, we decided that this wasn't actually that commercial, and uh, so we, we were stuck with 1493. Um, but again, the impact from, you know, as we think of it now, was you know, as much or more ecological 
than economic because on those ships came huge numbers of organisms and that had this enormous effect. And one of the most important from the European point of view is the potato. These are what actually potatoes look like if you go to small villages in the Andes.、Um, they've been developed there for thousands of years. In the Andes, you know, they grow potatoes in every conceivable ecological niche and for every conceivable taste.、Um, there's almost 6,000 known varieties that are in the International Potato Center in Lima. And、uh, you know, the first time I saw this kind of thing, I was in a small town in the Andes, and I saw these strange-looking. Objects, and so I said to the you know people selling them, what are you selling? And they said potatoes. And I said, no, 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 those things over there. What are those? Potatoes. And I felt like, what are they doing? Spoofing the gringo? And I said, no, no, what are those? And、um, finally, I got through my thick head that they were potatoes, and that my idea of the potato was, from their point of view, woefully unimaginative. So this tiny slice of the available selection of potatoes makes its way. Um, to, to, to Europe, and after a period of resistance, because Europeans don't grow tubers and they don't, you know, in this way, and they don't really understand how they how they work,、um, they are adopted. Now, I should tell you a little bit about the way the potatoes are grown in the Andes, because、um, they're grown in this kind of ridge and furrow system, and、uh, the, so that people plant the, you know. Carve the land into these ridges and furrows, and plant the potatoes on top of the the ridges. And the reason for doing this, you can see here,、um, the ridges. It's, even though it's just you know this much difference between the top and the bottom, the ridges are substantially warmer than the than the furrows. And you know, obviously, high up in the Andes, that makes a big difference. But also, they're substantially drier. And so you can see here, you know, in this、um, snowfall and potato season, that the tops are you know considerably less snow, considerably drier than the ridges and, and furrows. It turns out that this is that if you want to grow potatoes, a big problem with them is fungus-type diseases, and they funguses don't like warm. Dry areas; they prefer cool, wet areas, and so this way of growing it turns out to be a pretty good way of um, preventing um, fungi. Now, Europeans again don't really know about this. What they do know is shown here. If you're growing wheat,、um, you know the traditional European crop. If you look at the wheat here, it's got this you know big head、um, and this skinny little stem. So if you're a particularly successful wheat farmer and you have lots and lots of grain on each stem, the plants will fall over because they get top-heavy, and this is called lodging, and will kill the plant. And so you're punished in a certain sense、um, if you're too, too successful. Now over here, you have a very happy Lebanese farmer、um, from about 2008, and I don't think that's a photographic trick. I think it is actually the, this potato is actually bigger than his head,、um, and it's about a 25-pound potato. And the reason that you can, a potato can be just as big as you want because it's underground. It, the architecture of the plant doesn't、um, cause any problems. And so records suggest that Europeans, when the potato comes,、um, grow about four times as much dry food matter, as scientists say. You know, you know, taking out the water and all that sort of thing, as from an acre of potatoes that you get from an acre of wheat. And so this huge band of Europe between the Ukraine and Ireland becomes Andeanized. They start growing potatoes, and, be, and they get this massive increase in the supply of food. And so, you, you know, up until the、um, early 20th century, you would see these exact same、um, ridges and furrows, but they became increasingly rare、um, because. The、uh, agricultural reformers and great rationalists、um, became convinced that this was wasteful, and what you needed to do was just grow, you know, flat areas of potatoes. And this is something I'm going to bring up later. So you have, I hope, in mind this enormous belt of, of Europe. 
um, growing all these potatoes and becoming much more um, well-fed than ever before. And this is, the effects of this is shown. The um, great French historian Fernand Brodel was the first to um, really talk about this, and he compiled um, both the records and numbers of sort of Europe-wide famines. And what you see um, is that when the potato comes, these things just drop off the face of the, face of the earth because there's just more food available. Um, and then you also see a big kick-up in the number of Europeans. And increasingly, historians recognize that the potato essentially is the fuel for empire. Without the, you know, the, the, before the potato is introduced, European history sort of lurches from one food crisis to the next. There's, uh, um, in France, for example, in the, in the 17th century, there's one nationwide famine, more than one per decade, and hundreds and hundreds of local famines. There's bread riots. There's you know, people milling around um, and starving constantly. There's, you know, there's state granaries that always have armed guards on it. The place is a mess. Potato comes, and pretty much all of this stops, and the population begins to boom. The governments, because they're not dealing with bread riots, become much more stable, and they have a larger supply of Europeans, so they can go send them off to foreign places to conquer things. And so, you know, it's very difficult to understand these European empires that grow up in the um, late 18th and 19th century without understanding the potato. And in fact, um, I would argue if you happen to be going to, you know, Books, Inc. or, you know, one of the fine bookstores in San Francisco and you're in search of a one-volume history of Europe, you should flip through the index. And if you don't see an entry for potato, put the book back and look for a more modern book. Um, now, the potato also becomes, because it's this new crop, it's growing this new way, it becomes a target for agricultural reformers in the great, you know, thinkers of the Enlightenment, people with these names that to a person of my generation sound strange, like Jethro Tull, um, who turns out to be this important agricultural reformer. I thought it was like something they had made up. Um, and one of the things that they understand in the early 19th century is the role of nitrogen. The plants depend on nitrogen. If you want to have huge yields, you have to get nitrogen in a particular types of um, what they call bioavailable forms, forms that the plants can digest. And it turns out that um, there are these islands off the coast of uh, Peru where seabirds have roosted for, cent- for millennia upon millennia and have created these huge cliffs, mounds of, um, of guano, which turns out to be excellent fertilizer. And so um, in in the middle of the 19th century, they start bringing over Chinese slaves and um, setting up guano mines and filling ships full of guano and taking them to um, Europe. And the first big shipments uh, begin in 1843, where the large numbers of... uh, And you see, this is the beginning of modern input-intensive agriculture. Um, the kind of thing that there's an entire um, you know, industry of, of writers who rail against, many of them here in San Francisco, so I think you know what I'm, I'm talking about, this, this idea of treating the land as a kind of petri dish and, and so forth. It all begins here with a potato and with um, guano. And so if you're a modern uh, American farmer in the 19th century, you bought um, things like this and you would sprinkle it on and you'd have these, um, your soil and you would have these magical results. Now, these guano ships carried, though, as far as we can determine, a second hidden passenger. Fatafer infestans the potato late blight, um, which is a water mold. Basically, it looks like a fungus, so it's not, um, uh, you know, from a taxonomically a, a fungus. And basically, it really, really likes to eat potatoes and is very, very good at it. 
Um, and then you see the first sort of modern agricultural catastrophe. It's first reported here at the end of June 1845, and you can see the, um, the ripples um, spreading out. And basically, over a period of a couple months, it goes all the way ac ac across Europe and wipes out the entire potato crop. Now, because potatoes have become so pro um, productive, people in Europe are now very, very dependent on the potato. <clears throat> And no one is more dependent on the potato than the Irish. About 40% of the Irish eat literally no solid food other than potatoes. The result is um, that in a few weeks, you know, the entire food supply for these 40% of the Irish um, disappear, and it's, a, you know, it's a, just a catastrophe um, beyond imagining. About 2 million people die. Um, one million of them alone of them in Ireland, and there's these ships full of half-starved refugees who go across the, the, um, the Atlantic and land in places like Boston and Quebec, leaving a trail of dead behind them. It's just, you know, absolutely horrible. This is the last famine that occurred before the widespread use of modern photography, so we don't have any photographic um, images of it, but English newspapers are full of these kind of um, drawings. It gives you some idea of... Um, of, of what it was like in Ireland. From a biological point of view, what we're learning is that as creatures come over, there's this phenomenon called ecological release, which is they are transported from one place to another. Often the pests and pathogens that like to eat them are not transported along with them. They flourish, they do exceptionally well. Um, this is what happened with the potato. But nature has a way of closing the loop. And in this case, it closed the loop with, to catastrophic effect. Now, this wasn't just something that happened in Europe. It also, these um, impacts, if anything, were even larger um, in China. Now, when I went to Highland Junior High School, we didn't learn anything about China or anything about geography at all. So in case some of you went to my kind of um, high school, I thought I would show you a map of China. And uh, here it is. And um, one of the things you'll notice about China here is there's all these parts of China here that there's no river, China has no bot large bodies of water whatsoever, right? There's no Great Lakes in China. And that there's only these two um, rivers of any size, the, uh, the Yangtze and the Huanghe or Yellow River. And most of the uh, course that they go through are these very dry, um, steep hills, which aren't really suitable for agriculture. So there's only two small areas of China that are where, you go, where there's large amounts of flat, well-watered agricultural land. And this is the sort of central dilemma of Chinese history that you know, has beset um, emperor after emperor, dynasty after dynasty, that you have 20% um, of the world's population, 7% of the world's freshwater, and what is the staple food that you really like to grow? It's rice, which has to be grown in swimming pools. And so you, um, you know, which is you know, a colossal historical mistake. Because if you, have a, if you have a country that's, you know, half desert, the last thing you want to do is have um, rice be your staple crop. Now, this all dramatically changes in about 1600 when two American crops come, the uh, sweet potato and maize, or um, corn as, it, as it's called in, in the States. They're brought over from um, Manila. They're, they come in actually into the country in a couple of different ways. And the, they are the first crops that can be grown in relatively dry land, and they're really, really, you know, significant agricultural products that produce a lot, of ca a lot of calories. And so if you go to northwest or southwest China today in these areas of desert, you see sites like this all over the place. And it's, it's for me, you know, it's totally weird. They're I mean, this looks like they're trying to farm a beach. And um, yet they managed to get something out of it. And so what you had in China when these crops came in 
was this massive westward movement as the central government got people into, um, from the Han Chinese, which is the sort of main um, Chinese ethnic group, the one that's always, you know, when you refer to the Chinese, you're really referring to the Han Chinese. They go into the lightly settled west where there's all these ethnic groups that are not Han Chinese. The Han Chinese push them out and start clearing these areas that haven't really been um, farmed before and uh, start planting uh, uh, corn and uh, sweet, sweet potatoes. And the impact there is much like what happened in, in Europe. They introduce American crops, boom, China's um, population goes up, and this is where China really becomes a watchword for population. It's with the, the, um, the homogeneous scene. It's you know creation of this exchange of um, plants and animals around the world. Now, the way they do this in these very steep areas, um, again, it goes right into the 20th century. That's why you're able to see photographs like this. It goes right into the Mao Dynasty, where they um, essentially take a village, and they say, go out here and terrace this um, at unimaginable labor. And um, so there's these huge areas of China where you, have the, you see this you know, wedding cake effect. And they're growing uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes, and maize. You know, again, um, American crops. Now, there's a drawback to doing this um, in these, in these uh, areas in that there's not that much stone, so all these terraces are made out of um, dirt. And if you stay in the villages and it rains, which it does occasionally, you're woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning by... And what it is is every person out there is going out with hand tools and, whack, and trying to whack the terraces back into shape because they're falling down all the time. As you can imagine, this isn't the most effective procedure. And so this here is about a 100-year-old terrace where this poor bugger is still trying to grow sweet potatoes. Now, if you're looking at this, I hope you're thinking, well, wait a minute, what happened to all the dirt that used to be there from this, uh, from this terrace? And it goes right down into the bottom of this ravine here. Um, it's picked up in some little crick, nameless crick. It's brought down to a tributary of the, in this case, the Huanghe, and goes into the, um, into the Huanghe Yellow River. Now, when you have a whole lot of sediment, eroded sediment going into a river, um, what happens is, as long as the river is going fast, as long as it's going down through all these steep hills, the churning of the river keeps the sediment suspended. But when it goes into the flat areas, like the North China Plains, you know, the area that I showed with the red circle around it, what happens is, it, because it's flat, the river slows down. The sediment starts depositing, starts going on the bottom of the uh, riverbed. And because there's a lot of it, you have this curious phenomenon where the riverbed starts to build up, and sooner um, sooner rather than later, the riverbed starts to get higher than the surrounding land. And so there are parts of um, China where the Yellow River is um, 40 feet above the surrounding farmland. Now, you don't have to be, have a PhD in physics to know it's not an especially good idea to have a giant river 40 feet in the air. <laughs> the result is, as you will, I think, imagine, floods. And um, one of the things that uh, we did is... Uh, that uh, when I went to Beijing, we found this um, book where the uh, Chinese State Meteorological Bureau had compiled all these records from counties, um, you know, which is the sort of basic, these county gazetteers, which were required every year to fill in and send to the imperial court, and they did these flood maps for 600 years, and they sort of randomly picked one. Now, this is very hard to understand, so what I've done is doctored it up a little bit for you, and the way to think about it, as it was explained to me, is that see these areas here, these dark areas here. This is where, in this sort of randomly chosen year, 1823, they had like a catastrophic Katrina-type flood, 
where there was, you know, massive amounts of water, massive amounts of deaths, you know, permanent destruction, you know, entire villages wiped out. And then this band here is where they had um, just sort of deadly floods where, like, people's crops would be wiped out or people would be dispossessed, but you didn't have, you know, this appalling, you know, years-long um, devastation. And this happened year after year after year, fed by, you know, the erosion caused by the planting of these um, American crops. And so the way the state meteorological bureau guy um, explained it to me, he said, just tell your American audiences that it was like a Katrina per month for 100 years. Now, as you can imagine, um, this didn't endear the Qing dynasty, the government at the time, to the people. You know, you were dealing with millions upon millions of wandering refugees, starvation, massive damage. There is a uh, flood refugees um, caused something called the Taiping Rebellion, where 20 million people died. It was just, China was a total mess. And this, I would argue, goes a long way to explaining why, in the 19th century, after decades of this sort of thing, small groups of Europeans were able to march in and throw their weight around. This has much to do with the, with the fall of China. And so the same kind of ecological um, swashing around the homogenocene that was, um, you know, gave Europe a big leg up, gave, um, stepped on uh, China for a while. And to this day, the Chinese are still trying to recover um, from the devastation wrought by um, the, you know, sort of these introduction of the American crops. Um, this is the kind of thing that you can do in a dictatorship now. Instead of uh, entire villages being told to go out and you know, terrace, they're told to level the terraces and plant trees. Um, and uh, so, we, so you see this kind of site. They, they dig; the, they're called fish-scale pits. They dig them, and uh, now the, the villagers are rewarded by the number of trees they plant, not by the number of trees they survive. So that you see miles and miles and miles of dead trees because they grow northern pine, which are you know not actually terribly suitable. But we were it was explained to me by one of the villagers that um, this is actually an okay system because if the tree is dead, then you don't have to dig a new pit. You just, you just put a new tree in it, it dies the next year, and, but you've made your quota, and so you're okay. <laughs> so I'm not really sure about how efficacious this whole bit is, but you can see this. And what this is all, again, is trying to recover from the introduction of the sweet potato and, and maize um, 500 years ago. Now, it wasn't the same thing, you know, or similar uh, kinds of effects happened in the Americas. Probably the most long-lasting gift that Columbus gave to the Americas was malaria. Now, in case, again, any of you went to my kind of high school, I should explain that malaria is a single-celled parasite. Um, there's, a, there's a whole slew of different types, but there's only a few that are important to human beings. All of them are called plasmodium, um, and they, the basic deal is there's a type of mosquito, a genus of mosquitoes called um, Anopheles that exists you know, most of the world that can host these, um, these single-celled organisms. They bite you. Um, they inject... Um, some of these uh, cells into your body. They go through a bunch of changes um, and they get into a form where they can pry open red blood cells and uh, you know, hide inside them, multiply like crazy, and then in a kind of a coordinated assault, they rip open billions of blood cells and flood your body. You feel awful, um, you know, awful beyond imagining. And while you're racked like this, another mosquito bites you. There's so many of them in your bloodstream that draws up a few and the cycle begins anew. And malaria is an incredibly um, wily organism. Your, your immune system will eventually, if you survive, beat it off, but it can actually hide in your spleen or your liver for uh, months or even years. And, and so it was quite, became quite possible for Europeans or Africans to cross the Atlantic, 
um, come here and then suddenly get malaria, and there was already um, vectors, as they call it, there were mosquitoes that were capable of transforming. So it came to the Americas quite early. Now, this is a map showing some of the major types of um, Anopheles mosquitoes, their ranges, so showing that it was all over the place. Now, the deal is the worst kind of malaria is falciparum malaria, Plasmodium falciparum. And the, um, it's a tropical beast, and it really, really hates anything that smacks of, uh, of cold weather. And so there's a range in which it can exist. And um, it's, this is roughly it um, in, in North America, and it's roughly the Mason-Dixon line, or almost pretty exactly the Mason-Dixon line. Um, it can, it was, malaria was a constant problem in, uh, in um, Washington, D.C., but in southern New Jersey or someplace like that, it was just a rare visitor. Same thing is true here. Um, you have, you know, constant problem in southern Brazil, but in Ecuador and Argentina, it's an occasional visitor. And I'd also like you to notice something I would argue is not a coincidence, that this area here is the area in which slavery was a major institution in the Americas. The overlap between the boundaries of malaria and the, um, and the boundaries of slavery as a major institution, in you know, slave societies, um, is really striking. Now, I'd like you to keep that in your heads for a moment and show you a couple more maps. Now, as you probably, you may have learned in school, malaria has been around so long that different types of people in areas with lots of mal malaria have evolved um, strategies, genetic strategies, to try and combat the disease. The most, and most of them involve changing something about the um, red blood cell to make it harder for the, um, for the plasmodium to get in and um, replicate inside. And so the, the, here is sickle cell anemia, um, which is a very complicated um, thing, but maybe a very simple way of saying it sort of makes you half immune to um, uh, plasmodium. And as you'll see, it's most concentrated in Central and West Africa. Now, this is another kind that's um, not nearly as well known. Um, and it's, called, it's also another way of changing the, um, the red blood cell. This one has a couple of bizarre side effects. There's a little bit of it, it's not shown in this map, that's in Sicily. And uh, the result is that there's a certain number of Italian-Americans who have this. And one of the side effects of this um, particular genetic uh, condition is a deadly allergy to fava beans. And so if you live in Italy, every now and then the newspapers will carry a story about some, um, some poor guy who goes to you know, see his grandfather's town in, in Sicily, you know, catches up with um, you know, Uncle Giorgio, and um, you know, they're all getting together. They serve him a platter of fava beans, and he keels over. But it, you know, the Italians, of course, are sidelight, and so what you have here, again, Central and West Africa is where people who have this um, form of immunity exist. There's another type of malaria called Vivax um, malaria that's the second most important. Um, this is a Duffy negative antigen, another red blood cell change. Again, Central and West Africa. In fact, it's so prevalent in Central and West Africa that Central and West Africa are the only tropical places in the entire world where Vivax doesn't exist. Um, and finally, as a kind of kicker, malaria is often accompanied by another disease, uh, yellow fever, uh, which is kind of like chickenpox. Um, it's a viral disease. If you get it when you're a kid, you feel sick, but you survive. If you get it as an adult, it's about 75% mortality. Um, it's also transmitted by a mosquito, Aedes aegypti. And the, at the time of Columbus, the range of Aedes aegypti was here, um, which meant effectively that all Central and West Africans who got it as children were immune. So this was the greatest pool of people who were immune to yellow fever um, in, in the world as well.
Now, the difference between being immune to yellow fever and malaria and not being immune was first elucidated by the great historian Philip Curtin. Um, he did epidemiological research, and what he showed, he did studies of British uh, military personnel in various places overseas and recorded simply how many of them died and you know, at what, what were their death rates. And so if you go to malaria areas like Sierra Leone or the Cape Coast, which is in, uh, both in West Africa, you see you have roughly between... You know, between half and two-thirds of all Europeans, who, um, the Brits who went there you know, in, the, in this time, died you know, the, every year. So if you had 100, um, this, is, this is per thousand, I forgot to say. So if you had 100 Europeans who show up in West Africa, they stay there for a year. At the end of the year, um, you know, at most, 50% will survive. Then he compared it to Africans. These are in the same places, and you see that um, 32 in the, in the case of, of, of West Africa. And so that's like a tenfold difference. Europeans are ten times more likely to die in places with malaria and yellow fever than Africans. This has a lot to do, I would argue, with a question that was, I think, first raised by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. If you read The Wealth of Nations, there's four or five places in it where he tries to wrestle with slavery. Um, which he couldn't understand why it existed. And the reason he couldn't understand why it existed was, first, there was an institution for getting labor um, in places in, in northern Europe, and it was called um, the indentured servant. And indentured servants were, in fact, how initially in the, 16th, um, uh, in the early 17th century, most um, Europeans came to North America. You would sign, you know, you were a, a tobacco farmer, you would want to have more labor to, you know, people to cut your tobacco. So you would go and find some poor people in England. You would have them sign a contract. You'd pay for their passage, which was very expensive. They would work for you for four to seven years, you know, working off their passage. And then they would, um, they would then have a chance to start their own um, farm. And as Smith noted, this system had worked very well in, in Europe for centuries. Why then was it supplanted by this, plantation slavery, especially given that Africans don't speak the same language as Europeans because they come from tropical areas. They don't farm the same kind of thing. I mean, they, they, they don't farm annual crops in the same way, and they certainly don't farm wheat. And then, of course, they have no interest in working because they're slaves, and they want to kill you, if anything. They're like the world's worst workers. So why, Smith said, when you had a perfectly reasonable institution, did this come to existence? And if you read The Wealth of Nations, he basically comes to no answer. Um, he's, he, he's bringing it up, and then he finally he sort of wrings his hand and says, well, people are evil. And that's the reason. And people may be evil, but it's not very satisfactory. And I would argue that, once you, that what Adam Smith didn't understand was that the homogenocene had occurred, and malaria had suddenly transported itself to, um, to the Americas. And there there's a tenfold more chance that your European indentured servant is going to die than an African slave. And it's better to have an unwilling, rebellious worker than a dead worker. And that this puts a tremendous thumb on the scale and has a powerful explanatory effect about why there is places like Massachusetts, which is the first state to explicitly legalize slavery, but is never really a slave society. And the same thing is true for Argentina, where there's slaves, but it's not a slave society. When just over... Um, you know, a few hundred miles away, the same types of people are suddenly, you know, involved in full-scale slave societies like you see in Virginia and the Carolinas and Brazil. And this 
has an impact not only just on our own history, because obviously slavery has a, has a huge impact on you know, American and world history, but it also has an impact on our species itself. Um, before Columbus, Europeans were basically lived in Europe. Africans were to be found in Africa, Native Americans in Native America, East Asians in Asia, and, and so forth. You know, there were very few people that were out of place like this. After Columbus, you know, our own species is put in the blender. And you see strange things like uh, European domination in places like Australia, New Zealand, um, and uh, Argentina. You see African domination in places like Brazil and Chinatowns all over the globe. You know, this tremendous shaking up of our own, um, of our own species. But the dominating factor in this is um, the African slave trade. And uh, as David Eltis at Emory University points out, that when you think of colonial history, we, we tend to think of those guys like George Washington, you know, with their wigs and so forth. But in fact, nearly four times as many Africans as Europeans came over during, the, um, during this colonial period. And so what you really see from a point of view of biology is, you know, a diminishing native population and this surging African population colliding together throughout the Americas with Europeans playing a demographically peripheral role. And so this is, you know, the view of what actually um, is happening. And the result is, again, to create this extraordinary mixing of um, cultures and peoples. And the first one is, um, and this is a drawing by my daughter, so I, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, this is, is in Mexico City, which is the first really 21st century city. It's the first place where you have people from every corner of the world together. There's a big Chinatown in the middle of the uh, Plaza Mayor. There's a, this is a picture of the Asian market. There's um, nearly 10 times as many Africans and people of African descent as there are um, Europeans. There is, um, you know, this is this extraordinary melting pot. And it's the kind of thing that when you walk today, in San Francisco, and you know, of course, San Francisco is always praised for its you know, extraordinary diversity of cultures. What we're seeing is a kind of replication of something that began in Mexico City 400 years ago, the first truly modern um, metro metropolis, and, a con and the condition that we are all increasingly heading towards. And again, it's something um, you know, that's living in the homogeneousine. Who knows what's going to happen next? Thank you very much for coming and listening. Thank you to Stuart. Thank you, Kevin Kevely. Uh, thanks to our friend Neil for bringing us together. Let's go sit. Okay. Screen up, lights up. Oh. That was fast. <laughs> I, I just felt 500 years go by in a blur. Thank you. Um, so is it over? Is the big mix finished now? It's all the homogenocene is one big no. milkshake? Here, I'll give you an example. I okay. talk about actually this in the book. Um, you know, if you want to have an industrial revolution, you mm -hmm. need three things. You need fossil fuels, you need steel, and you need rubber. Um, and uh, fossil fuels are pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately or unfortunately, they're all over the place. Uh, steel, which is from iron, is all over the place. But the only place we can get natural rubber is uh, of good quality is uh, Brazil, mm -hmm. is the Amazon basin. And um, so in the late 19th century, there was an, a, a, you know, kind of a, a rubber boom in the um, Amazon. There's you know, extraordinary phenomena like giant uh, opera houses built in the middle of the forest and, and, and this kind of thing. And there's a national villain 
in um, Brazil, guy, a British guy named Henry Wickham, um, the, the inventor of biopiracy, as they like to call him, who <laughs> smuggled 70,000 rubber tree seeds um, out and uh, now huge chunk of Southeast Asia is covered in rubber plantations. Because it turns out that even though I learned in Highland Junior High School that synthetic rubber had you know, come up and saved the day in World War II, in fact, synthetic rubber isn't very good. And if you want anything for high-tech um, purposes or high-intensity purposes, like you know, that you really want to work like airplane tires or radial tires or mm -hmm. anything like that, they're all made out of natural rubber. Natural rubber is 40% of the market. It's still um, climbing. And so you have an area in Great Britain, uh, the, excuse me, an area in Southeast Asia, it's roughly the size of Great Britain that is a single giant rubber plantation. And um, in uh, Brazil is a South American leaf blight, um, which is to the rubber tree. Uh, you, you make rubber, by the way, out of the tree, but you cut it, and uh, there's this sap-like latex that's in it, and you collect it like maple syrup, and you boil it down mm -hmm. um, to make natural rubber. Well, it, there is in South America um, a blight that is to uh, the rubber tree what uh, potato blight is to the potato. And um, we, we lear Americans learned about this when Henry Ford in the 20s um, bought a huge spread in the lower Amazon, planted entirely in rubber trees, and it was wiped out in months. It was, he lost a billion dollars, which in you know, the 30s was, was, not, was real money, I think. Yeah. And uh, um, it was the biggest reverse of his career. So it's, that organism is still there. And now there's highways all throughout Southeast Asia. Now you can now drive from Kunming in um, southern China all the way to Singapore in three days. And uh, this is known as the Blight Highway to the botanists who are Oops. freaked out about it. Right. And um, I can report from personal experience that even if you show up with Brazilian stamps all over your passport in rubber country, they don't have, you know, the, the, you know how the food and agriculture inspectors here will spray your shoes? Mm -hmm. They don't do any of that. So the botanists have been screaming uh, about this for years mm -hmm. and um, maybe decades, and absolutely nothing is happening. So that's going to happen. Um, how do you think that plays out? Is this just a blight that takes out the rubber trees? Totally? Well, it's kind of interesting. There's, I mean, you lose... The models that I've seen say that you would lose all of it in three to six months because um, it's like an ocean of breakfast, right? Um, and so you'd ha it would be the biggest deforestation um, for a really long time, and so that would have its own effects. And because, but now, um, Wade Davis, actually, the biologist, was the first to note this. Spoke here not long yeah, ago. Excellent. Mm -hmm. um, the, we have just-in-time manufacturing. Uh -huh. And so it used to be, you know, in the 50s, um, oh. you would have piles and piles and piles of tires, right? Right. Now you don't. You know, like when you order the tire, they're practically making it there. On the, they're practically tapping the tree and making it on the spot. And so the tire association told me that there's about a two-week supply. So Wade Davis is on this case. He's saying that this is the end of the auto industry some particular year or what? He's just saying this is bad. <laughs> this is, and the extraordinary thing is when he, he wrote about this, um, I mean, there's a bunch of people who've written about mm. this. Um, he, he wrote memorably about it. And uh, so I thought, oh, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to talk about how, because there's this outfit called CIRAD, which is the organization of rubber producers. And I'll, I'm going to go there and I'm going to find all these great genetic engineering programs where they're going to breeding these rubber trees. Crickets. Nothing. Oops. And uh, so I wrote to them and, and they, it's amazing. But so, if you, you think about it, though, okay. I should not have been surprised. I doubt that there's that many people in this audience who can be shocked to find out that a government-sponsored organization isn't all that responsive. <laughs> well, 
Okay, Ireland, if they just brought over a few more varieties of potato, they would that would have been helpful. Yeah. yeah. So are there not a lot of varieties of rubber tree? Is this These are all actually I mean it's it's like a joke, but you know, Henry Wickham brings over seventy thousand. He doesn't and he they're not properly stored. They're not. He's just. He's paid by the weight. Mm-hmm. So he just grabs them all up, whether they're rotten or not. Mm-hmm. And um, the the he brings because he's paid by the seed. And so they're imagining, you know, when they when um, the British Kew Gardens, you know, mm-hmm. charges him with this, that he's going to come over with half a dozen of these lovingly. And he said he brings three quarters of a ton, and um, they have about a one percent germination rate, and um, which even for an amateur gardener is bad. Yes. And. Um, then they take them in boats to um, Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. and um, there most of them die. And so there's, it's very hard to find the exact number, but we'll say six that survive. Oh, yeah. And all the rubber trees in Southeast Asia, um, not all, but uh, pr- probably, that I haven't actually checked all of them, but it is, um, it is thought that a very, very, very large percentage of the rubber trees in Southeast Asia are from those six. So back in the They're Amazon, like clones. there's presumably a bit of variety, and in, in the, the trees have a workaround. Oh, yeah, in terms of and in fact, biodiversity. Um, if you read another Wade Davis book, One River, mm-hmm. um, which is mm-hmm. a great book, mm-hmm. um, he's a really good writer, so, you know... Uh, he's Irish, he can't yeah, <laughs> the, the U.S. government was very upset when the mm-hmm. Japanese, you know, took over in World War II, the rubber country. So, uh-huh. we, so the, in addition to developing the synthetic rubber... They sent um, a guy named Schultes, who is the great botanist from Harvard, tropical botanist, um, founder of ethnobotany, just a, a brilliant guy. Interested to, in drugs. And very. And um, he goes, he's, but he's a patriotic druggie, mm-hmm. and um, he goes <laughs> up and down the Amazon, and he collects hundreds and hundreds of different rubber trees, and they plant them in um, two plantations, I think Panama and Costa Rica, I, I, I don't remember the details. And... Uh, they find some that they think are resistant. Uh-huh. And then the war ends, and the U.S. government destroys the plantations because uh, it's a government. <laughs> okay. So this, this is going to happen. I mean, it's, it seems... Well, anyway, it's highly unlikely that it's not. Yeah, okay. That was... You read, heard it here first. Yeah. A couple of kind of technical questions. One from Jim Spaulding. Why didn't the Chinese flood uh, create big fertile plains in those uh, rivers? They get 40 they, feet high and then they flow well, they, they out they of did, the land. Isn't that become fertile land now? Well, yeah, but there's like, you know, several hundred thousand Chinese buried under it. And, uh, you know, they, and so... There's a lot more Chinese who could come in and plant that land now? or what well, yeah, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, in some sort of horrible net way it's mm-hmm. you know good for the land mm-hmm. um, but you know if you're a friend and relative uh, this it's probably difficult for you to take that kind of long-term perspective so it does happen oh yeah yeah I mean it's the same thing as in our Mississippi Valley I mean you know the Katrina was on some level probably a net ecological plus um, but you know this is not a viewpoint that is particularly popular in New Orleans that's interesting I haven't I would like to see an article on that I don't think I'd um, want to be the one to write it, though. Yeah, well, you get in trouble, too. <laughs> you know, in today, it's very easy to find people. Uh, Austin asks a question. This is primarily land-based homogenization you're talking about. What's going on with the oceans? Well, the big story of the oceans, I mean, you guys in San Francisco know all about it. It's ship ballast, right? Mm-hmm. And um, here's, a, here's a case where there actually has been some successful uh, action because... Um, what starts with, actually, probably the first thing we really understand something about is in Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
you know, they, they wipe out the tidal areas there and start growing tobacco like crazy. Mm. Um, and tobacco is very heavy. So you got to bring, you know, pretty big boats to, to carry it. I mean, the barrel of tobacco, it's because it's wet. Um, that. Uh, weighs about a ton. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, they, they, they bring in these barrels. And so the ships come back, and I mean, you know, over there, and they, you know, they, 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 whatever they're bringing is very light compared to it, so they have lots and lots of ballast. Uh, and um, uh -oh. the ballast is made by taking good English dirt and throwing it in the bottom of the ship. Right. And, um, in fact, I found a, um, an 18th century ballast manual that, that tells you where to find good dirt and stuff like this. <laughs> um, now, it turns out that most, uh, almost all of northern North America um, has no native earthworms. And the reason for this is they were squished by the Ice Age. Um, and uh, then for an area south, with the glaciers and so forth, mm -hmm. and then for an area south there was permafrost, and, mm -hmm. and the, the earthworms don't like permafrost. And earthworms don't have a lot of um, get up and go, mm -hmm. and um, so the earthworm specialists I talked to told me that you know, an earthworms, if you had a, a 10 by 10 area or a 15 by 15 area, an earthworm would spend its entire life there. Mm -hmm. So they move north, but really, really slowly. Okay. Um, and so there's effectively none in northern parts of North America. And so over thousands of years, in fact, the ecosystems in places like Minnesota and Massachusetts, where I live, develop in, in, in their absence. And earthworms are like these tiny, engine, you know, amazing mm -hmm. engineers. And uh, so when Europeans come, the ballast, they bring it, and then they're transporting plants, they're, um, you know, carrying their own dirt, and pretty soon there's earthworms all over the place. And uh, so we're having this sort of slow experiment of what happens when an area has evolved without earthworms for thousands of years and it's you know, carried, carried across in ship ballast. Next now, the know, same thing is happening in San Francisco within the waters, right? Okay. Where people are, because after they start getting upset about the, you know, mm -hmm. the dirt being all over the place, they start using ballast as water and they scoop up water in China and they bring it over here and mm -hmm. vice versa. And um, the result is that I think that I think the figure is almost three-quarters of the uh, species in San Francisco Bay are non-native. So we have these sort of novel it's ecosystems. It's supposedly the most uh, biologically invaded body of water there is. Right, it's a total novel ecosystem. I mean, you guys are once ahead leading the world. <laughs> but Us pikers uh, on the East Coast can only marvel at your modernity. You know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were out, I'd live on a tugboat, and we took it out to the Golden Gate to celebrate New Year's mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. And uh, there are harbor porpoises out there. Mm -hmm. There's now, they've been identified, and they all have names, and they're up to 400. These guys have been gone for 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe because of agricultural runoff or who knows what. But they're back, mm -hmm. which suggests a really healthy ecosystem in the water out there. Because uh, when you get those you know, top predators, they've got to feed on a yeah. whole bunch of stuff that's coming up the food chain. So those three quarters of alien invaders have not made the bay unhealthy, as yeah, far as I, mean, I can tell. You know, there's, it's sort of unfortunate we have this various invaders mm -hmm. because the great majority of them are perfectly benign, mm -hmm. you know, and um, the ones that are problematic are not problematic because they're immigrants, but they're problematic because they're problematic. You know, right. we have native species that are, you know, pains in the neck. Mm -hmm. And um, they, and so, you know, we, we have this, idea of these pristine ecosystems. Yeah. And um, the great geographer, 
uh, William Denovan you know, calls this the pristine myth, mm-hmm. um, that we have this idea of these ecosystems as these you know, untouched, permanent entities that go through these you know, beautiful stages of, of succession and you know, are, are whole and self-contained, and, and it really doesn't work like that. What's, what's happened is that this kind of natural mixing, is we've sort of turned it up to 11, you know, um, mm-hmm. spinal tap reference, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's, there, there's reason to um, wish that maybe we'd turn it back down to like eight, you know. Eight and a half. Eight yeah. and a half, yeah. Well, I mean, you can imagine. It's going to be tough to get and eradicate the earthworm. Yeah. Uh, maybe not even going. desirable, but, it, it, but you know, there are things <laughs> they that you could the do. The robins alone are going to complain. <laughs> yeah. The people who like the robins. And right. The but, you know, it's like sugar maples are disappearing um, from the former sugar maple forest because when they're little, um, the sugar maple saplings have these roots that because they're... You, oh, when you don't have earthworms, um, what they do is there's leaf litter. You know, the, the leaves fall down in the soil. Right. And basically, earthworms are, are machines that eat all that stuff right. and go down into the soil and excrete it in the form of worm castings. Enrich the enrich, soil. Enrich the soil. Right. But if you're in a worm-free area, all the plants have um, these little root-like threads that go into the pile of leaf litter above the mm-hmm. soil, and especially little plants. And so when the worms go, they, they're, they're incredibly efficient. They can wipe out this leaf litter in months, in a matter of months, and then all these plants don't, you know, they, you know a plant can't say, oh, I guess the food is down here now. Um, you know, it just futilely tries to feed itself where it's going to. And so you're seeing a wholesale replacement of certain types of vegetation. So we've and got so to engineer some maple trees to make sugar bushes that know about the food that <laughs> being down there and stuff well, up on you know, top. Or the other approach is uh, there's the, the various uh, bands of uh, kind of admirable people who are trying to fight the worm invasion. Um, there's the Minnesota Worm Watch. By um, pulling them up and feeding them to fish? Well, they, they put up signs like, you know, fishermen, please, you know, don't, you know, in addition to taking out your trash, take out your worms. And uh, Alberta is trying to, has a program to teach, um, you know, elementary school kids about the evils of worms. And uh, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Just goes to show. Um, can you talk more about this? Is uh, looks like Candace. Can you talk more about the European Ice Age and its causation? There's a uh, paleoclimatologist named Rudiman. I think yes, yes, Rudiman, who's the first guy to point this out. And is he? Uh, it seemed like it was kind of controversial when he said, "Well, wow, he has, you know, he has two change in okay, a big he way." He has two separate parts of his mm-hmm. um, his his theory, and he wrote a book. I think it's called Plows, Plagues, and Petroleum. You got um, it, right? Um, That's good. And uh, it's also quite interesting, and it's not long, so that's good. Um, and he argues that, um, that this, in effect, I mean, he, he came out before my book, but he effectively argues that this man guy is all wet, that the homogenocene and the Anthropocene, all these things really began with the invention of agriculture. Uh-huh. And we have been having a dramatic impact on the, on the climate since agriculture, which involves, you know, clearing huge forests and, uh, and so forth, and actually literally changing the albedo of the planet. Um, but there's these dips in when the in, in, in the past actually it sort of worked out as, as I understand it that the increasing temperature rise has more or less canceled out what would have been a natural cooling trend, uh-huh. and uh, this is why climatologists were confused and wrote, wrote in the 60s and 70s that we should be heading for an ice age because normally we would be, but you know we've been kind of but late, lately our our balance has gotten off. And uh, we're no longer just canceling the natural effect, but we're, you know, going off into, into all kinds of effects that, you know, 
um, are far beyond the scope. But the of great news is no more ice ages. Right. So, the, right. anyway, the climate change thing, the, the little mm-hmm. ice age. So, there's an argument about whether agriculture mm-hmm. really had that much effect. Mm-hmm. The particular thing I'm talking about is the little ice age, mm-hmm. and there's three main theories for why the little ice age was caused. One is sunspots, um, right. and there's this period of time called the Maunder Minimum, and basically, um, I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, pretty, there's a couple papers that sort of trash that. And the second one is that there is these volcanoes, and that there is this 250-year run of volcanoes. And that could happen because, you know, the volcanoes put stuff mm-hmm. in the air. And, yeah. and, and They've done it before. It's yeah. done it before, you know, like Krakatoa set mm-hmm. off the year without the summer and, and, that, and that sort of stuff in 1815. But you'd have to have 250 years of volcanoes, and there just doesn't seem to be records of enough volcanoes. And so this theory has hit the skids a bit, although it was recently somebody tried to resurrect it by saying that well, it seemed to me kind of like hand-waving that, you know, they sort of said, well, maybe there's these other effects um, <laughs> that right. would make it last longer. <laughs> and so this is the main theory that's left standing. That, that I'm, I'm sure the authors of the paper wouldn't like to hear it described that way. Question uh, from somebody nameless. Why didn't the Africans die of the Eurasian diseases the way the Native Americans did? Um, so, you know, well, they were all the Europeans came over, they'd been living with all these animals, they came out, they had all these diseases, and they were also colonizing in Africa. Right. Were Africans dying from those European diseases? To, to, um, to a small extent, but basically most of those diseases existed in Africa, because, you know, all those areas are, are connected. And so you had smallpox and TB and, you know, all those kind of diseases existed in most of Africa. Um, the big change is across the Pacific and across the, across the Atlantic. Okay. Um, John Willis asks, what is your take on the native plant movement, which I'm a member of. I rip up all kinds of invasive, alien invasive plants that I don't like. I I guess I'm, um, I like them. I think it's, uh, you know, I... I, The people or the plants? The plants, the plants. I mean, I think it's neat that, you know, we are, we are, um, you know, well, I, I guess my attitude is inconsistent, um, like pretty much everybody else's. We have, you know, we're building a house, and so we're landscaping it right now, and we want to landscape it in New England plants because that's sort of cool. Mm-hmm. And it also, there's something about a sense of place and so forth. But, in fact, um, we also are planting cherry trees because I like cherry trees, and, you know, cherry trees have nothing to do with um, New England, right? And uh, peach trees are also invasive. Actually, their peach trees, when they were introduced to Georgia, were so invasive that, uh, that it was called a wilderness of peach trees, and people were trying to cut them down, and uh, were being, they were being choked out. It was kind of the pr- it was a precursor to kudzu. What, yeah. <laughs> what do peach trees replace, I wonder? Hmm? We don't know. They're all gone. They're all gone. <laughs> well, there were these empty areas that, um, that Native people had cultivated, and you have the peach trees rushing in to a head ah, of they're a succession plant. They're a succession plant, yeah. Well, well, well. And um, the, the, the cool one was Darwin writes about this, and he, he, he saw um, huge forests of artichoke in Argentina um, that were making the pampas you know, in, in, impossible to pass through, and people were you know, cursing the artichokes. And then there were reports of gigantic fields of arugula in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Peru. There are arugula enthusiasts, like my wife, who would probably like to go yeah, to such a yeah. region. Just but you know, I think they're pe- beating it away with a stick. Right? <laughs> uh, Alex asks, how homogenous do you think the Earth can really get in, say, the next, next 500 years? Pretty homogenous. Okay. Yeah, but, so, you know, there's obviously going uh, to be like limits. Are we mostly done or halfway along, or what would you say? I, I, no, it's sort of hard to say. We don't even know how many species there are, right? Oh, you bet. Yeah, 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 you, yeah. you probably heard. I'm, I'm sure Ed Wilson talked, talked about the, you know, the enormous 
ignorance. So we know we have, of maybe 1.3 million species of this and that, and he not thinks including there's, microbes. You know, millions upon millions more. Right. So what percentage of those species? Most of those endemic guys in little islands yeah. and stuff. But, but a lot of them can move around. Right. You know, uh, kudzu was endemic to Japan. And now, if you've been to the southeast, it's definitely not endemic to Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be, an, that would, you know, so the more question... Cut, more kudzus to come, do you think? I, I think there's going to be more. I mean, what are the odds that, you know, given that we don't even have a clue as to how many species there, there are, that all of them from everywhere have gotten to where their final destination? It just mm -hmm. seems very unlikely to me. So somewhat overlapping with this is... Um, do you mind talking to this audience a little bit about the book you're working on now? Um, sure, I guess. Um, I don't really it's have always very tricky, but well, it's, no, I'm, I'm I think it's less it. tricky with nonfiction than with fiction. Yeah. If this was a novel you were working on, yeah, I would not right. ask you to talk well, about uh, it. Um, well, the, the, problem, the real problem for me is that I don't really have an elevator speech. You know, I, That's I, right, I, just hold forth. What's it about? Hold forth. I'm, you know, my heart sinks as imagining these people hearing, hearing the words you hold forth two and making people. it out you of the exits. Start with the two people. What are uh, the two okay. people? So anyway, it's a book about the future that makes no predictions. Okay, without predictions. We like that. Yeah. This, well, is, a this is a book that stays in print. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, we begin with there all, all those books about the future that make predictions. The predictions are wrong. They're right. always wrong. And then, you know, the author looks like an idiot. Mm -hmm. So, but at the same time, the idea is that, you know, I have a... Um, you know, some kids, and I was looking at them and thinking, you know, when they're my age, there's going to be between 9 and 10 billion people in the world. That's interesting. Which is a lot, right? And, um, and when you talk to people like agronomists and uh, water specialists like uh, Peter Gleick and, and those guys, mm -hmm. they're very worried about how we're all, all going to manage this. Um, and it's a severe technical challenge. Um, you know, they, because not only are there all these people, Actually, the, the number of people is less important than the fact that one of the big changes in our lifetime has been that huge numbers of people in Asia and uh, Latin America have been lifted out of you know, really dire poverty. When I went to Highland Junior High School, about 40% of the world um, was you know, hungry or not quite getting adequate nutrition or you know, much worse, and now mm -hmm. it's about 7%. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like an incredible thing, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we live in a, in a time where this so that's a miracle. So that's a huge demographic event. You think it's a huge ecological event? Well, yeah, because, you know, when you're wealthier, um, you want to eat better. You, mm -hmm. don't, you don't want your parents' gruel. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're really at the edge, you'll eat gruel, but, you, you know, you'd like a Snickers bar. Mm -hmm. um, you'd like an occasional treat. You'd like a burger. Mm -hmm. Of course you would. I would. You would. Uh, and so, you know, what this translates is that people at, who you know, spend a lot of time thinking about this, argue that roughly speaking, by 2050, we're going to need to come up with 40% more cereal crops, 40% more grain. 40% more grain by 2050. Yeah, okay. which is a lot, right? Because it's not exactly... And then like it levels off because population's yeah, leveling off? Yeah, population's level, okay. level off. And, you know, all this is kind of squishy, but the idea... But, mm -hmm. you, know, so, but you know, it's still a lot, and mm -hmm. it makes, makes sort of intuitive sense. So how are you going to do this? You know, and there's two main approaches which are associated with these two guys, um, and at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. And um, they're the two... I told you this was like not Start working. with Vogue. Okay, well, there's these two um, guys that I think are the most important people in the 20th century for the 21st century, if you follow. Cool. And uh, they are... They were pretty important in the 20th century. Yeah, but they were really important for the next century, I think, okay. because they embody the two, sort of broadly speaking, the two main approaches. And one guy, um, and neither of them anybody's heard of, um, which is like good and bad, right? Um, because 
It's you not specialize exactly. that in your books. You're full of news for people. I didn't know oh, all I like the slavery stuff news, and these other things. I like that. I like that. I'm going to have to tell yeah. my publisher, this is not a book about two people nobody's ever heard of, but it's full of news. Good. Um, you heard that, right? <laughs> he really does it. This is right. Anyway, kind of book. So there's this um, one, one guy who's the first guy who wrote a sort of modern We're All Going to Hell book. Um, his name is William Vogt. Um, look at the dead silence, right? Has anybody in this room heard of him? William Vogt, V-O-G-T. And then uh, he inspired the Our Plundered Planet guy. Yeah, the Our Plundered Planet guy. And he, he? he um, oh, I knew you were going to say I can't remember at the moment. Okay, I'm having a mental either. lapse. And but then anyway, the, both then, of them inspired Paul Ehrlich, who we yeah, have heard of. Paul Ehrlich. But, you know, he, he spoke he, on the but stage He, he um, was uh, the guy who put into print um, Aldo Leopold. He basically wrote... Um, uh, Aldo Leopold stuff because Leopold was a brilliant guy but not really that much of a writer. The Sand County Almanac, which was put together after his death. By vote? He, by vote. Wow. Um, he put, got uh, Rachel Carson into print. Um, he inspired the Population Bomb. He was the um, director of the Population Council. He was the uh, uh, you know, major force and founder of Zero Population Growth. There's this guy named Hugh Moore who he basically dragged in and became the founder of, founder of all these things. And hmm. Vogt was, so he did all these things. But he was the first guy in a book called The Road to Survival, which was published in the 40s, um, to do the modern version of Malthusianism, hmm. which is Malthus said that basically we grow more food, we have, we have more babies, the babies eat the food, we go back to the same level of misery. Right. Mo, Vogt said, no, no, we're going to grow enough food, but in doing so we're going to trash the ecosystems on which we depend. That's a very different uh, approach. Mm-hmm. That the you know in feeding us, in supplying our demands, we're going to wreck stuff. And so he was the first person to say, we need to cut back. Mm-hmm. You know the the Al Gore approach. You know the the, the, the Jimmy Carter wears wear a cardigan sweater approach. You know turn down the thermostat, reduce the human footprint, don't this eat is, meat. This is late forties after the war. He's saying let's cut back. Yeah. Oh, good luck with that. Well, actually, he was. There's a lot of people. The fifties. I mean, yeah, everybody yeah. is. Yeah, but no, actually, a lot of people listen because that's true. My mother listened. Yeah, I've got your mother was not around the house. No, no, yeah. it's very you know, and it was very much you know, he was also very important in the Audubon Society. He was one of the founders of the breeding bird census. Um, I mean, the guy was all over the place. Um, really a remarkable guy, and yeah. his human interest. Uh, he did all this while having um, polio, and so he you know went all over the world on, on, a, on a wheelchair and. Oh, uh, so he's you know, a gutsy guy. And um, his, he hated the other guy, as far as we can tell, and his, whose name is Norman Borlaug. I bet you some of you have heard his name, yeah. yeah. And Borlaug, in addition to being the guy who started the Green Revolution, was kind of the apotheosis of the idea and the, um, that we have these environmental problems. We have, you know, they're serious, mm. but using science and technology, we can produce our way out of them. Mm-hmm. And the Green Revolution is the case, but he was also a major force in nuclear power. He was a big backer of genetic engineering. Yes, I did not know. Borlaug yeah. actually was a force for nuclear power? Yeah. How so? Well, he was a major... He, what he did was um, he knew these people, and you see him constantly you know, pushing nuclear power in environmental organizations, saying, don't fight nuclear power, don't fight nuclear power. You yeah. know, this would be of interest to you, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so, didn't know that. 
And um, they so they didn't listen to him. No, didn't listen to him. His World Food Address, um, you know, talks about the need for um, for you know clean, safe sources of energy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he uses his weight. He and that's also a major backer of genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. um, one of his last projects is this um, project that we were talking about before, an attempt to put um, to change the way photosynthesis works in rice to make it more productive. Say a little more about this. And it's an amazing project uh, done by this outfit called the International Rice Research Institute outside of Manila, um, an incredible place, and it's the place that you know, really brought the Green Revolution to, to, to rice. And there's an international collaboration um, that started in 2009, the year of Borlaug's death. By the um, way, bearing in mind that half of all humanity eats rice and right. is its staple. And there's four different types of... Um, Photosynthesis, I believe that's the number still. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of argument about how they differently evolve. And the basic thing is that they're all horribly inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, there's like the worst, most inefficient chemical reaction you can imagine. Um, you know, as a, a friend of mine um, said, it's like proof of the existence of God because no human would have, uh, no real human would have come up with something so bad. Mm -hmm. um, um, you sort of make sense, right? Mm. <laughs> stupid design, we call yeah, it. Yeah, 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 stupid design. Um, anyway, he, the, um, there's, some of it, however, is less inefficient, and that's called C4, and that's one of the reasons that corn is so incredibly productive and grows these huge stalks, is it has a slightly more efficient version of um, photosynthesis than rice. Is sugarcane C4? Yes. Okay. And it grows go. like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I think it is, yeah. And um, does anybody know? We Somebody, think sugarcane is C4. Correct are you right? If we're wrong. Yeah, that's what I thought. Oh, good. Okay. I, was, I suddenly thought, you know, there's people in the audience who will know this. Yeah, in, we this are. in this kind of crowd, right? <laughs> so I can't just get away with a blather. <laughs> that I, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you. Have I said anything else wrong? <laughs> There's a certain amount of where do we start, but it's yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the idea is um, that you can transplant this mechanism mm -hmm. that, um, into rice, and it won't alter, in theory, the, the flavor of the rice or the way rice. What it will do is make it grow faster, and you might get another crop in, in there. And you could put a, you know, soybeans or something in there that would replenish the soil, and you could you know, boost agricultural productivity. Yeah, this is... <clears throat> fundamental stuff we're talking about changing the nature of the metabolism yeah, yeah, no, of the plant. It doesn't get much more fundamental than that. Yeah. yeah. And so this whole thing like the flavor saver tomato, you know, and all these other things, it just seems like, pfft, yeah. We're going deep. Well, uh, mm -hmm. hmm. what it, what's the current read? He was working on C4 rice. Does it look likely or what? The, you know, I've just begun research in this, but the, uh, so all I can tell you is that the researchers feel very optimistic. So Norman Borlaug and Vogt uh, worked and together so the often, idea, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, you know, they, the, the basic idea is that you know, the, for the book is to take um, you know, four real serious areas, which rather cheesily I, I think of as the four elements, um, you know, earth, air, fire, and water. And so earth is God, agriculture. God, that's lazy. Yeah, it is terrible. I may not do it because, uh, I mean, I'm going to cover those four areas, but it's, so, yeah, it's pretty bad. But it worked as a sales thing. And look, this is the only part of the elevator pitch that I had. And he, look, he just trashed it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Leave out the four Greek elements. Yeah, right? well, maybe, okay. You heard it here, guys. It's on. It's gone. Okay. But the, the, anyway, the idea is that there's agriculture. Mm -hmm. You know, how are we going to feed all these people? Um, there's water. 
um, and there's a high-tech you know, version of that, which is these massive desalination plants. Um, which run are, by nuclear power. Run by nuclear power, which you're seeing in places like northeast China. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, you know, energy supplies. Mm-hmm. And then climate change, which is sort of odd man out, but it also plays a role in all this. Uh, and uh, the idea is that there's a Borlaugian path, like you know, in Waters' case, that would be it. Um, mm-hmm. And curiously enough, China is trying to embrace both um, with water because in Tianjin, they're rewi- which is this huge city, they're rewiring the whole city, replumbing the whole city to have gray water in every apartment, which is costing you know $11 billion. And um, holy smokes! And so, and of course, the deal is that. As China is discovering, you really can't do both. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you know they're, they're, both of these approaches, the you know, Borlaugian and the Votian approach, are, are in fact well, expensive and complicated. Well, here in California, you, you may know that we feed drinking water to our agriculture. Right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, at vast expense yeah. in energy and everything else. And uh, I think there's a good argument for letting the gray water uh, or less right. incredibly pristine water uh, Perrier basically going out in the acres and acres. Of, yeah, uh, I have to say that as a, when I was in my um, first time I came to you know, real visit to California and I'm driving along the Central Valley and I'm seeing these swimming pools and you know 106 degree heat and I'm driving with my friend uh, Peter Menzel, the photographer, mm-hmm. and I said, "What's that?" He says, "Rice," and I just like, "No, <laughs> they're growing rice in the desert. Get real." You know? <laughs> Turned out to be good for the birds actually because they figured out a way. Uh, the Cadillac Ranch guy yeah. figured out that you know actually uh, the dry part of the season and bring the birds in. They poop. Yeah. Instant guano that you yeah. don't pay for. It's a lot of advantages actually to some of the, especially in Northern California. Oh sure, no, rice I mean, agriculture. Still, it's the flyways 106 and, degrees. and the rice guys work together. Yeah, 106 degrees, um, vast amounts of really good water. Yeah. Mm. There's that. So China is uh, gray watering a city. And you can't really do. It turns out that as a practical measure, it's very hard to do both mm-hmm. because the people in the gray water say, say, wait a minute, you're charging me to like redo all this stuff in my apartment, and over there they have fresh water from salinization, and the people who are doing the salinization are saying, wait a minute, why are they doing the gray water? Mm-hmm. You know, that money should go to us. Both right. of them are saying that money should go to us. And so I would argue, as, in most places, as a practical matter, you're going to tend towards one part of the spectrum or the, or the, or the other, and that you know, my children, your children, um, are going to, you know, ultimately that's going to be the the decision that they're going to make. Do you have a name for these two paradigms yet? Well, I, I call them... Um, I'm afraid to tell you because you're going to say it's terrible, and then I don't oh, have a I'm backup. Sorry. <laughs> Listen, I'm so in awe of your books that oh, you know, oh. pay no attention. Uh, do you have really, this is the... like the soft soap. I mean, it's so naked. It's. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, when I admire something, I can't help it. I just blurt it out. You know? Oh, man. Um, so anyway, the two... Paradigms have they? So I, I, you know, obviously Votian and Borlaugian, which is terrible. But uh, right. uh, I've sort of the title of the book tentatively um, is 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 the Wizard and the Prophet. The Wizard and the Prophet. What do you say? <laughs> it, this is. I can take this little part and send it to my editor. <laughs> <laughs> Got a subtitle? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, it's actually pretty good because I, I, I can even tell who is who. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, play out a Vokian version of the of this century. Um, 
I got his, I think I have a pretty good idea of, well, that's of your, what your Warlock would want to do, yeah. mainly because it's sort of what I would want to do. Yeah. But uh, I used to be over in the Vokian view of things because my teacher, Paul Ehrlich, and various mm -hmm. other things that I bought from my fellow environmentalists mm -hmm. uh, incorrectly. And so I could see the Borlogian thing coming along, more and more engineers in the world, blah, 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 the developing world, developing, mm -hmm. among other things, a lot of really smart people with really good training who have their own agricultural mm -hmm. issues, water issues, and so on, and they're not running their engineering ideas through us anymore. They're doing them right there mm -hmm. where they live, and they don't so necessarily you, we'll, we'll worry about, about things yeah. that we worry about. So we'll talk, I guess I think of it, I mean, again, this is something I'm researching, but I, I think that you can think of it as weak vote and strong vote. Um, weak okay. vote is kind of like um, we mm. all stop eating meat. You know, okay. um, and then pull tricky, out your canines when you do. Yeah, pull out your canines, and then you know, um, and there's in fact there's just a, 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 an op-ed in the New York Times uh, last week, I think, a big deal. You know, where someone said that essentially meat is just unsustainable in any way. That's true. On the other hand, so vote would say stop eating meat. Stop, that's the that's the weak version. And, now the other and Borlaug would say uh, grow meat and vats. Grow meat and vats. But you know. It, it, the curious thing is that... And so does PETA, by the way. Yeah, PETA says that. Yeah, no, I went, actually went over there um, to the Netherlands, which is the center of that, uh -huh. uh, a couple months ago. And, um, you know, this is a, a, a project that could clearly happen. It's because it's tissue. Um, uh -huh. So uh, the, the weird thing is that they just can't get funding. Um, this is like a Kickstarter project. Oh, Christ. And that's yeah, all they said. Uh, they just can't get funding. And they're, you know, this is not... <laughs> <laughs> but the other approach is that you sort of rethink um, agriculture itself um, and that cereal agriculture, grain agriculture is, but is you know, it has, it, it's, it's not suitable for every place. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and there's a lot of places where we, where we do it where it's not, you know, especially, you know, the, the smartest way to go about it. And there are other models of agriculture. Agroforestry and all these things. Yeah, yeah, trees and tubers. Mm -hmm. and, um, trees and tubers. Trees and tubers. And um, there's a lot of research on this, and it's just stupefyingly productive. Mm -hmm. The question is whether you could really mechanize it. And, um, and I, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. I tend to think engineers Robots are, are smart. cleverer and cleverer. Yeah, engineers right? are gonna smart. They're going to sniff truffles pretty soon. You're right. If you can sniff a truffle, you can probably pick a tree. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there you get, you know, because what you have is these systems tend to replicate natural systems. You have some um, ad advantages, and you're doing kind of multi-cropping at, at, at mm -hmm. once. And uh, that Robots kind of... Robots with serapes and yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that you know, so there's, a, in a weird way, um, you know, again, that's something that... I, but there's a fair number of people, very smart people in places like Brazil, mm -hmm. um, who mm -hmm. think that this is the, you know, this is the, is, is, the, is the way to go, and that you could have extraordinarily productive farms without going through this very complicated uh, procedure um, that they're doing in, in, in Erie, which is they regard, you know, in the sort of voting way, as trying to, you know, uh, wring the last drops out of an exhausted paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, where's population growth fit in all of this? It says, I, I, as far as I can tell, um, you know, there's, this is a time when there's a little bit of neo-Malthusianism in the air. Um, you have things like there's been reports of forced um, sterilization coming up again. Uh, where? In India. Um, 
of who by who. I don't really. There's an article in the Guardian about it a couple mm. of weeks ago. So you know, and uh, there's a woman who named Betsy Hartman at uh, um, at Hampshire College, who's really mm. the expert on this. And basically, what I know is from her. Mm-hmm. Um, just says that you know, this is like, you know, she said, I thought we had got rid of this in the seventies. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's back. Um, and she believes that you know, I'm I'm really just taking it from her, so I haven't mm. really independently verified to this, but she believes that. You know, in the NGO world, it's it's all back. You know, not in the you know, it's it's or no no, it's coming back. It's coming back. And uh, her the argument, book that's really good on that, by the way, is Fred Pierce's uh, "The Coming Population Collapse," right? Called "People Quake." And, no, it is complicated because you know all societies have depended on this population structure. We have lots and lots of young people and a small number of of older people. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how the Social Security and, and all that is the assumption is that there's all these younger people who are kicking in their pennies to support a small number of older people, but you know people like you and me are hanging around for far too long, and um, they, we're not having enough babies, and so the result of instead of being a triangle, you know, mm-hmm. pyramid as it's called, is looking more like this. No society ever has looked like this before, so there is that is a genuine change, and you have you know if they live if you know people like you and me keep you know don't kick the bucket enough. Um, we we end up with things like you know, you know these endlessly hanging around people like you know. Can you imagine Donald Trump at 160 years old? Um, How about Edward O. Wilson at 160? I would I would settle for that. Well, I know, but the question is, the Edward O. Wilson at 160 cancel through Donald Trump when his fortune is multiplied through the magic <laughs> of compound interest. <laughs> Now, a number of this audience heard Ed Wilson Friday night, and I think you read his book on your way here. Yeah. And so this group would probably be interested to know what you make of Ed Wilson and the social conquest of Earth. Um, well, Ed and I have a complicated relationship. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, not, not an important one to him in any way, or, mm-hmm. or, but... Uh, I wrote a, when he started coming out with uh, the biodiversity stuff, mm-hmm. I wrote an article um, in Science about, because uh, I'm a correspondent for Science, about um, that the math and the science behind the biodiversity crisis was very shaky, mm-hmm. um, which it is. Um, Hot spots have sort of gone away. Well, they're just, it's, it's all based on, there's a, there's a guy named Peters in the 90s who wrote a thing called a critique for ecology, which he lambasted ecologists for not really being rigorous. Hmm. Um, And unfortunately, it's still quite true. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and then, um, I I don't know, Uh, then um, we got, I I wrote a review of consilience, which I argue that he starts from a, as he did with sociobiology, he starts from this incredibly solid base Mm -hmm. in the insect kingdom but he's a little bit like he's inching along a branch until he gets to the very end, at which point he saws off the branch and falls to the ground with a large crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he, he is essentially saying the entire world is like social insects. Mm-hmm. And um, I, and, and, and making by analogy, you think people you did are like that this. again with this book? A bit. A you bit. social people are like you social ants, only not. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's like an analogy. Mm-hmm. which is a really powerful analogy, but I don't know if it's actually science. Do you buy uh, group selection, multi-level selection? I don't know. I, I just read the book, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'd have to read it again. But I, I looked in there. I thought, well, that's really interesting. But I don't think he... I, I couldn't find where he specified the exact mechanism by which it would happen. Mm-hmm. He said it's sort of... 
it seemed to me he was saying, but maybe I'm wrong, okay, mm-hmm. because I, as I said, I read it on a plane, um, which is not you know, really conducive to thought. I, I kept thinking, well, how does this happen exactly? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm like the, I don't have much imagination. I always want to know, well, wait a minute, where, where is he saying it happens? How? Mm-hmm. And he kept, it seemed to me, but I could be wrong, that he was sort of saying, well, it happens because look, this, it must have happened. But I have to say, no, 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 how, how, how? You know, it, it's not enough to say it must have. You want to say how. Yeah, it's kind of like the Gaia hypothesis, uh, where basically James Lovelock was saying, well, you know, we're not like Mars and we're not like Venus, so the end result suggests that where, you're, where you have life, you have a self Yeah, no, I, I wrote a piece about that for science, sort of saying, how exactly? How? <laughs> <laughs> Hydrogen sulfide looked pretty good as the yeah. thing that was coming out of the microorganisms so, so, in the ocean and so, you know, banking maybe, droplets, which make clouds. Which yeah, then, yeah. Yeah. Maybe the um, way to put it is that um, this is not a book for the very literal-minded like me. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So this conversation will continue. So he's an incredibly nice man. I have to say, I feel uncomfortable in this because he's a, a, a just an extraordinarily decent guy. And he's been terrifyingly right a lot of times. Oh yeah. So I'm, we're po- picking on, on the you know it's, it's unfair. And as a natural scientist, he's without peer as for the ants stuff. Um, your book, the new one, uh, the wizard and the prophet. The unwritten and unresearched book, yeah. <laughs> is uh, talking about the whole century or 2050 like everybody does, or what, what's the time frame? Well, I'm a little bit vague about that because it's unwritten and unresearched, but I, I think that the, um, the, the point is it's, it's probably this coming century. Mm-hmm. It's that it's, you know, I mean, you know, to attempt to imagine what things are going to be like in 100 years seems, you know, at the very edge of, of possibility. Um, but you, you could probably get 30 years. You know, you... Well, the kinds of biological this, changes is... that you uh, did research and did write very well about that in these uh, two books, 1491 and 1493, what was the pace of change of those events? <laughs> some fast, some slow. Um, uh, say a little bit about each and why. Well, I mean... Um, well, the, a big example would be the, the, the smallpox. You know, mm-hmm. smallpox came in, and that was the, a very fast killer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of like the, uh, it, it comes in um, apparently in 1519, comes to the American mainland. Um, there's some records that it was um, brought in by an African slave mm-hmm. um, named Francisco Aguilla. Uh, historian I talked to thinks that this is Spanish malarkey and that they just don't want to cop to the fact that they brought it themselves, mm-hmm. so they blame it on an African. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's, so this, this is all quite clear in the records. And mm-hmm. there's an interesting thing uh, actually demonstrating the uh, importance of disease to the European conquest of the Americas. You know, Cortez comes before mm-hmm. this. Right. Um, and he does this thing that the Spaniards have learned in the islands, which is you seize the king. Mm-hmm. And um, this would have worked in Europe, by the way, if uh, a party of Inca had somehow come to France and seized the Sun King, and mm. you know it, the court would have been paralyzed for months. In the same way, the same thing would have happened in Stalin, right? And so they. This is a novel I want somebody to write. Yeah, <laughs> but it would have worked. Alternative history. Yeah, yeah, it would have worked. It would have worked. And it worked in, in um, you know, because the Chinese in, guys in those big ships could have done it. Yeah, Chinese guys in the British ships could have done it exactly. Mm-hmm. And they, so they seized that the king. was the previous speaker of uh, why the West rules for now. Who was right. here? More, and, Morris. More, Morris. Yeah. A really interesting book. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, so they seize the king, and it does as it would have done in most places in the world. It paralyzes the court for a few months, mm-hmm. and um, then they sort of regroup, 
um, they say, wait a minute, there's just a few hundred of these guys, and there's like umpteen billion of us, even though the king is divinely you know, appointed, <laughs> okay. Do the math. Right? Yeah, do the math. And so they attack the Spaniards, um, and they, they kick Cortez's ass. Um, that's a technical term I'm using here. And um, they Hard kill. Hard to do with guys with, you know, guns and swords and steel and yeah, but you, horses and stuff. They, they just, they, and they, they kill all the horses. They uh, wipe out, I think it's about two-thirds of the Spaniards. And supposedly, it's, in Spanish histories, it's called the Noche Triste. It's the sad night. It's hmm. a great night if you're not Spanish. Right. Um, but supposedly, um, Cortez, you know, he escapes mm-hmm. um, and sits under the tree, some tree and cries at the ruination of his hopes. So then... Did he still have the girlfriend that had helped him get Marina, into yeah, she got away. Yeah, she got oh. away. And, um, and so... This is a really good story. Yeah, and there's no... Weirdly enough, there's really no good account of it that takes together... Because these were literate societies, and there's mm-hmm. tons of native sources about it written you know, in mm-hmm. um, the language, but there's nothing that's really tries to combine the, 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 the two of them. The closest is an academic study, quite a good one, by a guy named Hasig. Um, but there's nothing that's really mm-hmm. meant for ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the, so he cries. And uh, then he is an amazing guy, Cortez. He starts mm-hmm. all over again. And um, basically what he's done is foment a civil war. Everybody hates the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. Um, so he presents some, he manages to gin up this coal. He's a better, he's a tremendous politician. He gins up this coalition. So he's, you know, it's, he's riding at the head of an army of, of tens of thousands of people. Um, local people. Local people, right. But he's doing, he, in this very clever way, he foments a civil war and hijacks it mm-hmm. to put themselves in charge. Both sides exhaust themselves. Um, but what happens is, you know, he's lost. So while he's gathering together the second time, the um, smallpox comes in, uh, and untreated smallpox kills about 40% of the people who get it. So this is one of the most densely parted place, populated parts of the earth. Um, and uh, 40% of the people die, including most of the court of the, of, in, in Tenochtitlan. And the Spaniards are all immune. And so right. they draw from this their immunity you know, pretty clearly, well, God must like us. Right? And the Indians draw the same lesson because they see the Spaniards are immune. Right. They think God must not like us. Um, it's a tremendous psychological boost and they're able to take it and they wiped out court and um, goes to victory. So you have an experiment there. Yeah. Anyway, this scene, I was on this the panel with no, Joseph Nye, the other guy, yeah. the, the other day, the guy who does uh, soft power. Right. And he says narrative is everything. Mm-hmm. And sequence drives narrative. Mm-hmm. And this was a case where you know this biological event occurred right. and then you had these two mirror narratives right. that came up at the same time and then that right. made the human but, event happen. Yeah. In the 60s they traced this epidemic and it raced all the way through Central America mm. and um, again there's records of, of, of it when Spaniards would come and they'd find all these people who'd had smallpox and say how long ago was it? It was 10 years ago and mm-hmm. you know because these and went into the Inca Empire which is again this hugely populous central society and it um, wiped out the, killed the emperor, killed a bunch of his chosen successor, um, you know, killed a bunch of the people in the, in the court and led to a civil war um, you know, over the succession that Pizarro was able to walk into and hijack. There you go. And so you have, incre- anyway, to, this is an incredibly long-winded answer to your question, which is no, that a, it, you know, it's very fast-paced in this case. Well, it's uh, spread virally, as we say. Yeah. Um, smallpox is a virus. Yeah. So our YouTube videos. <laughs> so let's end with, uh, what's a case of 
of a slower but equally powerful kind of change that happens in this homogenization of everything. Well, I would say um, that one of the sort of big unknown stories is the spread of African grasses. Spread uh, of African grasses. Throughout the uh, Americas, these incredibly tough grasses. And uh, one of the things that uh, we're learning is that um, these grasses are these very thick kinds of grass. And, you know, a big puzzle, you know, to me at least, when I went to the Amazon and saw these areas that had been cleared for ranches and then they're abandoned. And it's, you know, all that stuff that people say is completely mm -hmm. true, how, how terrible it is. Well, why aren't the forests regrowing? Yeah. Because we knew they regrew um, because the areas that were wiped out by the rubber trade have done fine. Well, a lot of the reason is that um, when the farmers deliberately planted African grasses... Like which, what? What kind of grasses? These are grazing grasses. These are grazing grasses. Um, yeah, and uh, um, I think Judy Carney at, LA, and, at UCLA has written a lot about this. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of people who've written about African uh, grasses in the, in the New World, and they were initially came to the Caribbean in the bedding of slave ships and, uh, and so forth. And they are this thick, spongy cover that chokes off uh, re regrowth. And so they've been a very, very effective means. Doesn't permit savanna like you see in parts of Africa? Hmm? Doesn't permit a savanna of wider yeah, space trees with no, no, cows under them? No, they, they, are, they, well, they, 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 burn, they, they cut down everything and they plant um, you know, some types of, these are short grass and not the tall mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. and, uh, ah. and they are having a big, big impact um, slowly spreading into forests as natural disturbances occur and the African grasses colonize it. There you go. Carries on to this day. Uh, more to come. And two whole different kinds of solution sets that is coming along in this next book. Thank you for coming tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.